2 Samuel chapter 10, it says, It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show chesed, kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father, And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Therefore Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Ma'akah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtob, 12,000 men. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth-Rehob, Ishtob, and Ma'akah were by themselves in the field. Then Job saw that the battle line was against him before and behind. He chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadad Etzer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, that is, the Euphrates River, and they came to Elam and Shobach, the commander of Hadad Etzer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Elam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobach the commander of their army who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadad Etzer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. Chapter 10 moves from the kindness that David shows to Mephibosheth to the kindness that he shows to a pagan king. In one, the grace, the mercy, the loving kindness is received, and in the other, it's rejected. What do you suppose prompts the human heart to reject an offer of love, to reject an offer of forgiveness, to reject an offer of comfort or courtesy, How is it possible that someone can destroy a relationship, destroy a family, destroy a community, destroy a nation on the basis of a misunderstanding? 
In chapter 10, the misunderstanding is deeply rooted and grounded in fear and suspicion. I read in a commentary this morning, in fact, it says this chapter provides an object lesson, if one were needed, as to how wars can develop out of nothing. A friendly act by David was misinterpreted by the Ammonite king and was repaid by a gross insult. The next step was to look round for allies and before long, three nations are at war. What caused the war? Undoubtedly, it was suspicion and mistrust. Otherwise, David's friendly gesture would have been accepted as such. Where suspicion and mistrust exist, it is possible for any and every action to be misjudged. And that becomes part of the point that we have to make right from the start. Because typically your relationships with others is going to be based on one of several things. Openness or not being open. Kindness or not being kind. Suspicious or not being suspicious. Mistrusting or, or trusting. And so it begins in verse 1. It says, it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died. And Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show chesed. The last time we were together, we learned what that word meant. It's generosity. It's loving kindness, if you will. It's undeserved favor. To the son of Nahash, as his father shown kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. Now, one of the things that I want to draw to your attention. Remember, David is feeling kind of generous. Gracious. He's come to a place where God has blessed him and placed him in the position of king. And so David isn't content to simply sympathize or empathize with, with the sorrow, if you will. But he decides to act with kindness to the king. And he does so on the basis of a relationship of kindness that was shown to him. And I'm going to explain that in just a moment. Before I do, I want to just remind you who the Ammonites are. These are the descendants of the younger son of Lot. And remember, the sons of Lot were the people who didn't have very many forks on the family tree. This is the group of people who are a constant thorn in the flesh of Israel. But you have to understand something. The children of Israel were commanded to treat them with kindness. As a matter of fact, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 19, the Lord speaking about their relationship with the Ammonites or the younger children of Lot, they said, quote, And when you come near to the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession. Because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. In other words, the Bible spells out what is now the modern kingdom of Jordan, if you will. That this is a special place set aside for those descendants. And anyone should have been able to open up their Bible. And point to this scripture concerning what Israel's position should be towards this particular people group. They lived in that area north and east of the Dead Sea. I've been there. It's, it's just not far from Ammon where we get the word Ammon. As a matter of fact, the rock city of Petra is located in, in what was the ancient Nabataean kingdom. Their chief city in the ancient days was called Rabbah. And the city was located on the outskirts of the modern Ammon in Jordan in an area that's called the Citadel. And like I said, Israel's had a long conflict with the Ammonites. The Ammonites would often form pacts and alliances with neighboring desert tribes to keep Israel from occupying the land that was promised to them by God. As a matter of fact, the Holman Electric 
uh, electronic Bible has an article which describes the ongoing fight between the um, between the people of Jabesh Gilead and the, and the Ammonites. Now, for those of you who are with us in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, I talked a little bit about that. The, the Jabeshites were suing for terms of surrender with the Ammonites. But the Ammonites, in order to close the deal on the surrender, said, okay, we'll accept the terms of your surrender, but here's the deal. We are going to put out the right eye of every male in your village or city and as you can imagine that's pretty harsh and so what they did in desperation they sent a message to Saul at Gibeah for help and you'll remember Saul organized an army he lifted the siege from the people of Jabesh and so you can imagine when you do that it it creates a lot of goodwill in other words, Saul, even though he did some really bad things, there from time to time he did a couple of good things. And the people were grateful to Saul. You'll remember when Saul and Jonathan and his brothers were killed in battle and they cut off their heads and they took their bodies and they tacked them to the wall at Beth Sheehan. It was these people, the Jabeshites, who came in the middle of the night and stormed the wall. The original Israeli commando team took the bodies off the wall and gave them burned them and gave them a decent burial. And so the wars that followed between David's troops and those of, of Hadad Etzar of Zobah is listed in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6. And so it was this incident that provides the basis later on in the chapter when, Dave, not this chapter, but the next chapter, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, remember that there comes a time when David has his unfortunate fling with Bathsheba. And it's during that occasion. Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was killed while storming the walls of Rabbah in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, which we're going to get to. So, Certainly Nahash had not shown kindness to everyone in Israel, but he had shown kindness to David. You probably heard the expression, the enemy of my enemy is my... The enemy of my enemy is my friend, and so Saul had it out for David. And because Saul had it out for David, David was shown kindness by the king of Ammon. Now, we're not told under what circumstances the kindness was shown. We're not told if it was the time when he sent his parents there. We're not told. But when the king died, David had formed an alliance, a pact, a friendly treaty, if you will. And so he sends a delegation of ambassadors to offer condolences and offer comfort as a sign of respect and admiration for the people of Ammon. Now, the ways of the world in international politics are sometimes difficult to figure out. You look at our world in which we live and you see the current administration and you see the current administration providing help for our enemies and then condemning our friends. You know, it's unconscionable what this government did to the prime minister of Israel. It's unconscionable. And the reason why I say that it's unconscionable is because no matter what your political affiliation is, it makes sense. Let me just be very clear here. When someone is kind to you, you know what the normal response is? You are kind to them. You know, it's certainly we're to love our neighbor as ourself. Remember what the Bible says. We're to love our enemies. But to treat your friends like trash is not a good idea ever. And that's what's happening here. David was one who admired and respected loyalty under pressure. By the way, when you live in a difficult world... When people are more than likely not to embrace you, but to abandon you. You know, you've heard about fair weather friends. 
the people who are your friend just so long as everything is going good and everything is fine and everything is on the up and up. But the moment that something horrible happens, they disappear. No wonder David liked people who showed loyalty under pressure. When people showed him kindness, now I want you to think about this for just a moment. When people showed David kindness, he showed them kindness. But when people did not show him kindness, he was still very long-suffering and still very, very patient. And look what it says in verse 2. He says, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort them concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And then in verse 3, and the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, their lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? Question. Is the text leaving us with the impression that David is acting truly in sincerity? He wants to do what's right. I think that the answer is yes. I think he's acting in sincerity, but the counselors, clearly of the new king, filled the new monarch with doubt and fear and suspicion. Now, this should be a lesson to each and every one of you. Because unless you're God, or unless you have supernatural powers, it's very difficult to see what's going on inside of a person's heart. Sometimes people come to you and they pretend to be something that they're not. But you know what? When you begin with the premise of fear and suspicion and doubt, then make no mistake about it. Things aren't going to turn out well. These are, by the way, the same evil suspicions that came upon Joab. Again, those of you who are familiar with 2 Samuel, you'll remember that when, that when Abner came to visit David, Joab was fear, filled with fear and suspicion and plotted, and eventually he kills Abner. He believed that Abner was spying on David and was spying out their weakness so that they could exploit him and his men. And the counselors bluntly say, do you really think David has our best interests in mind? And it shouldn't shock you or surprise you when people say the same thing to you. When someone comes to you, particularly when you go to church. Because we live in a world where people are weird and there are cults everywhere. Hey, you know what? I know you're going to that Calvary place, but if they offer you Kool-Aid, decline. And you go, it's, it's really not like that. Oh, I know. I listened to that guy on the radio. You have to be careful what he says. And you need to understand something. We do live in a world where people say all kinds of crazy, weird things. The counselors say, hey, is it true? Does he really have our best interests in mind? Someone once said the thought can be father to the action. And why would the counselors do such a thing? And I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions. It's possible that these counselors to the new king genuinely suspected David. It could very well be that they are like corrupt politicians in every generation. That because they're liars and because they're cheats and because they're thieves, they think everybody else is a liar and a cheat and a thief. Remember when you were a kid growing up? Takes one to... Oh, you know. Takes one to no one. And so if you begin with that premise... That everybody is exactly like you. There's no doubt about it. 
you could come up with some doubt, some fear, some suspicion. What we think inevitably leads to what we do. And that's the principle that you need to embrace. This is why the Bible over and over and over again asks you to think the best and the highest. That you begin from a position not of fear and doubt and distrust, but that you begin from a position of openness, not to wickedness. I'm not asking you to be undiscerning. I'm certainly not asking you not to evaluate things or test things. But remember, the Bible says love thinks no evil. Love begins with the premise not of evil, but of good. The leaders of Ammon don't politely decline David's offer of kindness. They publicly humiliate his ambassadors. Here's the big question that scholars wrestle with. Did David know that this was going to happen? I think inevitably the answer is how can we know? I think that the inevitable answer is no David, like his future famous son, begins with a heart of graciousness and kindness and really means the graciousness and kindness that he's willing to extend because it becomes a type and a picture just like how Jesus deals with the sinner. When Jesus extends to you the invitation of of hope and forgiveness. Do you remember the very first time anyone ever talked to you about Jesus? Hey, you know what? You can have a right relationship with God. You can experience forgiveness. And what's this going to cost? Nothing. No, no, tell me, really. I, I want to know. What's the bottom line? Tell me, do I have to go to church? Do I have to read my Bible? Do I have to pray? Do I have to give you money? Just get cut to the chase. Tell me what this is going to cost me. The Bible says that you're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God, lest any person should boast. No, 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 come on. There's no free lunch. There's nothing for free. And people start talking to you about God. And they start talking to you about Jesus. And they start talking to you about the Bible. And you are filled with fear and suspicion and doubt. In verse 4. Then Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle like it says in uh, Forrest Gump, the way he says it, at their buttocks, <laughs> and sent them away. The king humiliates the messengers or ambassadors of David. He takes them into custody. And you have to understand something. Even in the ancient world of diplomatic immunity and protocol, it was a serious breach of international protocol. It's a serious breach of trust. Imagine if the, if the Israeli ambassador came to Washington, D.C., and they threw him in jail. I I hope it never happens. I hope it never happens. But that's what it would be like. When a person comes on behalf of a government, he represents or she represents that government. It was a serious breach of trust. The king then adds insult to injury by shaving off their beard and turning their robes into hospital gowns. I hate hospital gowns. You know, especially the kind where there's sort of like an open air arena in the back. I never knew what it was like. I mean, I I had an instant sympathy with women. The moment that I had to put one of those hospital gowns on, I just had this creepy sensation that people were always trying to look up my dress. You have to understand something in this culture, in the Hebrew culture, it was a serious, serious humiliation. It's my understanding in the ancient world, if you wanted to humiliate a Chinese person, you would cut off his braid at the top of his head. And this was something unthinkable to the Hebrew, his 
Beard was a sign of virility and wisdom and manhood, and robes were worn with the utmost dignity to cover nakedness. And in the culture of the Middle East, a man would rather die than have his beard cut off. Because you have to understand something, in this culture, being clean-shaven was the mark of a slave. A slave had to shave his face because he wasn't free to do what he wanted to do, but free men wore beards. And with the value universally set upon a beard by the Hebrews and other Oriental nations, it was in that culture and society a man's greatest ornament. As a matter of fact, the cutting off of one half of it was the greatest insult that could have been offered to the ambassadors. As a matter of fact, in this particular culture and society, it wasn't unusual for a man to swear by his beard. And you have to understand something. When a man swore by his beard, that means that if the promise didn't come true, that he had to cut his beard off. And it was an extreme humiliation. As a matter of fact, people did not shave their beard unless they were under duress or they were in grave mourning. And cutting the robe up to the waist is pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? Now, I'm not admitting to anything because this is going on tape. But mischievous junior high schoolers, when I was growing up, if you really wanted to humiliate someone, we called it, you would pants that person. You would take their pants and you would put them down. And if you really wanted to humiliate someone, you took their underwear out of the gym and you flew it on the flagpole. Nothing was more humiliating. You see, the thought that leads to the action, it leads to terrible consequences. When you're in junior high school, you never think for a moment that doing that what seems like a harmful, harmless prank can create so much pain and so much sorrow and so much aftermath. The moment that these people cut their beards off and cut their robes, do you think any of the counselors envisioned 60,000 people dying as a result of this fear and suspicion. And see, this becomes part of the point that the text is making. A thought becomes an action. And with each action, you set in motion a series of consequences. And that's exactly what happens when you begin with fear and mistrust and suspicion. And in look in verse 5 it says when they told David he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Now this becomes an important insight again into the character of David. Look how he deals with his trusted advisors who have been publicly humiliated. And this becomes one of the things that becomes an important point for you as a leader. For you as a mother, you as a father, you as a brother or a sister. You who are in a position of responsibility, you don't add insult to injury when people have been humiliated. And David, David doesn't wish to further expose them to public ridicule. He tells them to wait in Jericho until their beards grow to an acceptable length. And David is angry. And angry isn't even the right word. He is enraged. Because when a king sends an ambassador, the way you treat the king's ambassador is the way you treat the king. And David realizes, David realizes that the men's shame is his own shame. And you have to understand something. The same is true of David's famous son, Jesus. Jesus 
sends you as ambassadors. Jesus feels the same way about you. Jesus has placed you in your family. And Jesus has placed you in the community. And Jesus has placed you on the job. And Jesus has placed you in circumstances. As a matter of fact, Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Paul envisions himself as this ambassador sent by the Father through the Son to a watching world, begging people, imploring. He, he's, here's the idea. Listen to Paul's admonition, his message from the king. His message from the king is be reconciled to God. The Bible says that your sin has separated you from God. Be reconciled to God. Well, what am I going to do about my sin? Haven't you heard? God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven, washed, cleansed, forever dealt with. Your sin no longer has to separate you from God. You can experience a right relationship with God through Christ instead of being estranged from God, instead of being separated from God, instead of living in darkness all the time. You can live in light, be reconciled to God. But remember what Jesus told his own disciples? If they hated me, they will hate you. Does it shock you or surprise you that they took your master and they took him in Jerusalem and they arrested him and they persecuted him and they beat him and they tortured him and they killed him? And don't you remember why? Because he threatened the religious establishment. He threatened the status quo. Now the king of Ammon is going to experience the full force of retribution. Not only will he be in trouble, but his people and all the allies that he enlists in the war against David and the people of Israel will be in trouble. And this becomes an important point for you because God has sent you into the world as an ambassador and you may start off quite innocently. You may see someone in need and in hurt and in comfort and so you bring to them the truth about Jesus your your intention isn't to embarrass or humiliate anyone your intention is to give people hope and then people misunderstand what you do some people resent it some people will even get bitter some people will even get combative and you think, how is such a thing possible? How is such a thing possible? All I wanted to do was help. It was never my intention to bring harm. More people will be hurt. And more people will die than the king ever imagined. Philip Keller puts it well. Just the false imagination of one man's mind would lead to loss, suffering, bloodshed, death for roughly 60,000 people. One man's wrong thinking would precipitate a vicious war that would wipe out his people and reduce them to slaves in David's ever-growing empire, unquote seems to be a repetition, doesn't it? In every age, we have, especially in, world, in the 20th century, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Hitler, Stalin, Chairman Mao, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein. You could just create this list of people who wanted what they wanted, and it wipes out literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and then millions of people. Human beings have the capacity and the power to imagine things which are not as though they really exist. 
Imagination is a two-edged sword. It can be used to create works of art. It can be used to create complex math formulas or synthetic materials. It can be used to create powerful weapons of mass destruction. A mind that isn't submitted to Christ can be given over to the worst kinds of activities. But that isn't why you were saved. You, you were saved so that your imagination would be sanctified and your creativity would be sanctified and the enormous God-given talents that God has imparted to you could be used in a way to honor Him and glorify Him. A mind that isn't submitted to Christ can be used for every unimaginable wickedness. We can use our brains, our minds, our imaginations for good things or bad things. It can distort thinking. It can give a false view of life. It can end in the indulgence of fantasies and self-deception and ultimately destroy a person. All the while the person is thinking, I'm just trying to be creative. I'm just trying to exercise my God-given talents. You see, this becomes the key. What you do with your thought life, what you do with your imagination, unless you bring your thoughts under the captivity and control of Jesus, you run the risk of being enslaved by the monsters in your mind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And here's what we understand. The battle for the Christian begins in our mind. And when we are born again, we have to... Think differently and process information differently until Christ's mind is formed inside of us. Until the mind of Jesus is formed and the character of Christ is formed and we're transformed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, here's what you do. You begin to love what he loves. You begin to accept what Jesus accepts. You begin to reject what Jesus rejects. And you allow the mind of Christ to be formed in you. And then in verse 6 it says, When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Ma'akah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtob, 12,000 men. It wasn't unusual in that culture that when you were outnumbered and outgunned, you would hire mercenaries to protect your borders. They woke up one morning and they realized what we have done is stupid. And now we have to hire people to guard our borders. They hire mercenaries and soldiers. They ask help from Syria, Zobah, and Aram. And Aram is the ancient word for Mesopotamia. This is the area that you and I call Iraq and Iran. So Jordan hires mercenaries from Syria, Iraq, and Iran to reinforce their borders for fear that Israel might invade them. Some Bible scholars estimate that the king of Ammon spent about 47 tons of silver bullion. How do we know that? 1 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 6. It says that the Ammonites paid the Syrians 1,000 talents. One talent was the total amount of money that a very well-to-do person could make in a lifetime. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. And in verse 7 it says, Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. And by the way, this is the first mention of David's mighty men in the Bible. Joab is put in charge of the war effort. 
The troops have amassed on the borders. He puts Joab in charge of the war. He's no stranger to battle. And we're introduced to David's mighty men. And clearly David's mighty men are a reflection of David. You remember? These were the distressed, the indebted, the discontent people who followed David in the, in the, into the cave of Adullam. These are the men who followed David. And now they've grown up and they're a part of the military. And we're given a short profile of some of these men later on. On. Uh, there's a guy named Adino, the Eznite. He killed 800 people at one time in 2 Samuel 23.8. Jashobim, he kills 300 people at a time in 1 Chronicles 11.11. There's another guy named Benaiah or B- who kills a lion in a pit on a snowy day and, and who takes a, on a huge Egyptian warrior and then kills the Egyptian with his own spear in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 22 and 23. So uh, again, think of this army of people like Jet Li, Walker, Texas Ranger. Who is that guy? Yeah, Chuck Norris, Sylvester Stallone. Think of every person that you've ever thought of in the movies who goes into a circumstance and wipes everybody out. And you have have a whole army of people like that. It's just really not fair to your enemies, is it? Yeah, these guys are like made-for-TV movie scary people. Scary people. And in verses 8 through 11, it says, Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth, Rehob, Ishtob, and Ma'akah were by themselves in the field. And when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in the battle array against the Syrians. Let me just fill you in. Joab and Abishai are facing a battle on two fronts. They come to the border gate, and as they come to the border gate, an army is in front of them, and now all of a sudden an army appears from their rear. And so they are literally surrounded. And because they are surrounded, Joab is savvy in the ways of war. He realizes there's only one way to survive this disaster. It's to cut the army in two and then attack on both fronts. So here's the idea. They're they're trapped in the front. They're trapped in the back. So he says, look, we're trapped on both sides. We're going to cut the army in half. I'm going to put a prong this way. You're going to put a prong in the opposite direction. If I start to fold under the pressure, you assist me. And if you start to fold under the pressure, I'll assist you. Now, again, this becomes an important principle for you as a Christian. Because we have enemies. And sometimes we're surrounded. And sometimes the fight is way more than one person can handle. And you need help. You need someone to pray with you and for you. You need someone to be with you. And so that's the great application. It has a personal application. It has a social application. It has a military application. It has a church application. It has a home application. When you're under pressure, I'll help. When I'm under pressure, you help. You know what they don't do? They don't fold. It never, ever enters his mind that he's going to lose. Now remember, Joab doesn't appear to be what you would call a religious person. But in verse 12 he says, Be of good courage, and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. In other words, here's what Joab's thinking. If ever there was a time to pray, it's now. (laughs) Hey, when it looks like you're going to be killed from the front and you're going to be killed from the back, it's like, okay, let's pray. And that's exactly what he does. He calls on the Lord in the midst of the battle. And look what he says. He remembers the words of Joshua. Be of good courage and be strong. That's the battle cry. Be of good courage and be strong. 
When Joshua said those words, it was because he knew that the enemies of God would be persistent enemies. And he repeats it in first in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. He says, be strong and of good courage to hear the Bible and to believe it and obey it. So Joab prepared for the battle, but ultimately he left the outcome to the Lord. In verses 13 and 14, it says, So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were folding under pressure, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. The armies of the Lord prevailed. Now think about this. Joab prepares for the battle, but ultimately he leaves the outcome in the Lord's hands. That's a principle for you. We prepare for the battle, but we leave the outcome to the Lord. And then in verse 15 it says, When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadad Etzer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river and came to Elam and Shobach, the commander of Hadad Etzer's army, went before them. Here's the idea. Even though they were defeated on the first round, they came back for seconds. And this should be, again, an important principle to you. Just because you experience one victory, make no mistake about it, you have a persistent enemy. Have you ever said, I thought, I thought I've already dealt with that. I thought this was over with. You mean you've come back for more? For some strange reason, the Syrians thought that they could regroup, mount an assault, break free from the subjugation of David, but it was not to be. David gathers the army. He defeats the Syrians in an overwhelming victory. David had fought many battles in his life. And that's part of the principle for you. The day of respite and the day of rest, that's the exception. That's not the rule. As a matter of fact, it's only when David finds himself unwilling to fight the battle that he is going to face his greatest temptation. But that's for another time. Oddly enough, we are to win our battles... By defeat. What? What do you mean? How do you win by losing? The way we as Christians win by losing is to remind ourselves that our Savior Jesus has won the battle for us. The victory over sin was won by Jesus. The promise of eternal life was given by Jesus. Jesus has done everything necessary in order for you to have all that you need To be all that he requires you to be. I uh, read an interesting story that I want to close with. It's one of the strangest tales to come out of World War II. It concerns the story of two young men who were captured by the Americans in Germany near the end of the war. The two were shipped to POW camps in this country, but attempts to integrate them were to no avail. They would not or they could not speak to American authorities, and they kept to themselves, and they refused to talk to anyone, even their fellow German prisoners. In fact, the other German prisoners insisted that they didn't know anything about these guys. The American officers were puzzled. The two men seemed frightened and bewildered but they weren't sullen or rebellious and after a few weeks in their new quarters they even seemed willing to cooperate but when they finally did speak no one could understand a word that they said and there was something else too they didn't look like Germans their features were more Asiatic in appearance as a matter of fact A language specialist was called in who was an expert in Asian languages and he soon solved the mystery. The two were from Tibet and they 
were overjoyed that at last someone was able to understand them and to listen to their incredible, almost unbelievable story. It seems that in the summer of 1941, the two friends, lured by a desire to see something out in the world outside their tiny village, crossed the northern frontier of Tibet, and for weeks they wandered happily in Soviet Russian territory. Abruptly, they were picked up by the Russian authorities, put on a train with hundreds of other young men, shipped west, outside a large city at an army camp. They were issued uniforms and rifles and given some rudimentary military training. After a few days, they were loaded into trucks with the other soldiers and shipped to the Russian front. They were horrified at what they saw. Men were killing each other with artillery, rifles, hand-to-hand combat. They started to flee to the rear, but in their flight, they were overtaken by the Germans, and then they were made prisoners and then they were loaded onto a train and shipped this time to Germany and after the Normandy invasion the American forces neared Germany they were put into auxiliary service in the German army then the Americans continued to advance the two were given guns and told to fight with the Germans once again they tried to make a run for it but this time they're captured by the Americans When they finished their story, the interpreter asked them if they had any questions. And they said, we only have one question. Why is everybody trying to kill each other? They had no idea why the war was being fought. And sometimes Christians act like they have no idea. How did I get myself in this odd position? I know that when I received Jesus as my Lord and my Savior that I would experience forgiveness of sin and newness of life. But no one said that the devil was going to become my enemy. No one said that the world was going to try to crush me. No one said that my wicked, evil desires would well up inside of me and try to lead me in the opposite direction. Welcome to the world of Christian living. You've arrived. You've arrived. There is a battle to be fought. But all of the weapons that you need to succeed have already been given to you. The Father is protecting you. The Son has overcome the devil. And the Holy Spirit has been placed inside of you so that When you war against the flesh, remember what it says in Galatians, that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh and that these are contrary to one another. But you've been given everything that you need to succeed in this battle. What happens when you give up the fight? Oh, that's next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for this amazing book. And it's amazing lessons. And Heavenly Father, again, I, oh, I hope and pray that it, it, it isn't just interesting information, Lord. I pray that we would be willing to enter into that transformation. That, Lord, we don't want to be just spectators in the battle. Lord, I'm sure that these poor Buddhist Tibetans, they'd made a, whole, they'd made a vow it was, it was against their, their rules and principles to kill people. And they couldn't even function in a world where that even seemed possible. And Lord, we're growing up in a world where doubt and fear and suspicion and criticism is an everyday part of our world. But Lord, we pray that we would stem the tide. Lord, we pray that we would do what only Christians really can do. Begin with love. Continue with trust. Lord, create within us a desire to think not the worst, but to think the best. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.